Listening to Food Chain, presented by Perfy. A big thank you to this episode's sponsor, Triple Whale. Triple Whale's powerful analytics platform clarifies your ad performance across channels, keeping you instantly in the know. Hit the link in the show notes and use promo code Perfy for 15% off today. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Food Chain, presented by Triple Whale. Today we have Matt Weiss with us, the founder and CEO of Ryan Snacks. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Voss. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to uh, dive into all the things Rind. But before we get there, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, be happy to. In between sips of a Dr. Perfy, I must say. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. So I started Rind as a true side hustle before that word kind of entered the lexicon in 2017. And less a side hustle and more like cheating on your day job, mm-hmm. <laughs> where you start to do nights and weekends working on a project. And before you know it, it takes over your life. It's really hard to compartmentalize a passion. And it's all consuming or it's nothing, right? And mm-hmm. Or it's just an idea. And in this case, from 2017 to 20. 20, before I decided to take the plunge and, and do grind full time, I was straddling both worlds, one of which was finance, where I was an investment analyst and a, a portfolio manager for a mutual fund, which sounds pretty boring and plain vanilla, but was actually a fascinating area for me to learn how to evaluate businesses, market opportunities, learn about people and invest in people of high character, high caliber, with vision and integrity. And so it was actually an amazing proving ground. I never thought out of college, my very first job would be a 20-year career where you stay at the same place. I think that's a very different path for most college graduates these days. But I was always learning and challenged at the firm I was at and meeting phenomenal entrepreneurs that were building their businesses or leading teams. And it felt like they were all making a dent. And I would go back to my computer and do the spreadsheet modeling and the research analysis on behalf of somebody else's dream and vision. And I loved it. and I learned a ton. But I always wanted to be on the other side of the table. And so after 20 years at an investment firm, where the last several years I'd been covering food and beverage, because it's where I gravitated to, I started Rind and it took over my life. That's fascinating. I always get excited about like founders and what their experience was before they started their own thing. You know, for me, it was marketing and I'm a marketing founder, if you will. And it's great that, you know, there's different practices that people have under their belt before they jump and do their own thing and builds different strengths. And I think it kind of sets the pathway for how that company is built thereafter. Because you probably didn't need a finance person for a long time, right? Correct. It was great to start this from more of a... Where you have a framework of how a business you know, runs, is built, how the income statement and cash flow statements and everything kind of works together and why you have to build a foundation to start and not just be a brand with improper unit economics and 
go down a wrong channel strategy. Like I wasn't the chef. I wasn't a farmer's market person selling my wares. And I have tremendous respect because those people come at it from the product first. And I kind of came at it from why does the dried fruit category have to be the saddest, most sleepy part of a grocery store and worse than that turned into and disguised as like a candy in order to be relevant to kids. And that was, you know, less about creating something brand new than taking what really is nature's candy and bringing it back to its roots. One of my favorite ways I like to describe what we do is everyone is like, well, what's your secret sauce? What's the special ingredient? And I'm like, our secret ingredient isn't anything we add. It's actually what we don't subtract. It's the rind. And most brands before us have been like stripping away the rind because that is the most challenging part of the fruit for them. It's the least uniform. It's the least you know, sweet when done on its own. It's why peels are often candied. And it is oftentimes... It has some cosmetic imperfections that make it, you know, less commercial. At least that was the thinking for the last 50 years. And I actually think all of those cross currents are reversing in many ways, where all of those liabilities for the category and the product are becoming virtues in the eyes of the new consumer. Unreal. And did you like go into this knowing, like, with your background, like finding market opportunity that the, you know, dried fruit category was just so boring and you saw an opportunity there and you went after it? Or do you think that maybe more of your family lineage of your great-grandmother kind of instilled that in you? Yeah, it was balanced. But honestly, what the the story and the memories of my great-grandmother, who was a health food pioneer, I like to say before kale was cool, she was like an OG. And she used to preach roots, rinds, seeds, and stems. And it's like, wow, great-grandma is is crazy. And (laughs) in reality, she was like, she had some of the best wisdom to share. And as often is the case with your, you know, those that come before us. And I got to know her when I was, you know, up to about eight or 10 years old. She lived to 100. And she was a picture of health throughout her life, like was doing sit-ups in her 90s, was going to yoga classes, was juicing. You know, that was great-grandma Helen. And she was an entrepreneur. And that was part of our family history and and lore, where she had her own health food store like a 100 years ago. Uh, It was more in the 30s. But it was like, she used to have a set of standards of what she stocked in her little health and wellness shop. And she refused to sell processed foods. She refused to sell white bread, for example, that had been stripped of its like wheat germ and wheat bread. And which was so different from the time she lived in, because at that point, processed food started to become a luxury. It was called Wonder Bread. And she was hearkening back to a time when, you know, food is real and whole and unprocessed or minimally processed, more like meat and potatoes. And that pendulum has, I believe, totally shifted again, where I think she would be so 
pleased and would love going to like an Expo West and being like, this is what I've been talking about, people. And even though she'd be like a zucchini noodle, I don't know. But, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, she would be, I think, very happy to see that the pendulum from processed to unprocessed and ugly being the new beautiful is back. And that's how nature intended it. So why mess with that? That's kind of her MO and her legacy and who I pay homage to when I was starting the company. It's amazing. I love the family touch and brand stories and really seems like great grandma Helen was ahead of her times, literally. Yeah. So what kind of impact are you making on food waste with Rind? Yeah, really proud of some of the impact that we're having there as we grow. I'd say we really started though, while we sit as a brand at an intersection of like functional fruit, whereby keeping the rind on, you're amping up the fiber and the vitamin and all the nutrient availability. That was pillar one. The other pillar was using rescued fruit and using the whole fruit, all the rind that we could, you know, maintain. And those are the twin pillars of the brand. But when we started, we were heavier in our storytelling and in our consumer education on the functional piece. You know, the rind is so powerful and concentrated with fiber and vitamin C uniquely available in the peel that is different from just having the flesh of the fruit alone. That was sort of our storytelling. And as we've evolved as a brand, we've really started to talk about both tent poles because the cross current around upcycled and rescued and really being able to quantify the amount of food waste associated with fruit that's just a little bit cosmetically impure or blemished or overripe. To the consumer we're talking to now, this awareness of we have such a food insecurity problem in our world, how is it possible we're throwing away millions and millions of pounds of nutrient-dense peels and getting you know just pushing that into landfill when there's such a higher and better use for it? And so we've actually been able to quantify, more to your question, our impact. And it's about a million pounds a year of edible peels that we are able to keep in the food system by virtue of our production process and our growth as a brand and a business. And while we have a long way to go, it starts with changing the consumer mindset that we like to say, keep it real, eat the peel. And if we can do that writ large, you know, we really collectively can make a difference. And it won't just be used as like a little bit of zest and then thrown away or carted away as a feedstock. It'll actually be, you know, you make orange juice, you have all these spent rinds. There's brands out there that will raise their hand and turn that into nutrient dense, delicious snacks. And so that's the impact we're having. It's still a small impact, but it's moving in the right direction. And I think it's easier for consumers to wrap their heads around a change in behavior around keeping the peel on, even with something like a kiwi. Like we do a dried kiwi that's very popular with the skin on, the fuzz on. And I think most people have always been peeling a kiwi and not appreciating that you're going to get like three times the fiber and vitamin content. And that skin is perfectly edible. Just wash it. Hmm. As you were building 
Did you find that consumers were pushing back against eating the peel or was that pretty easy type of thing? Nothing's been easy. Um, (laughs) I bet you can relate. I would say timing is important too in like how much you need to push the consumer to your version of the story and vision of, you know, the way things can be. And I think it, even in the last five years of my having been on this journey for that long, it's gotten easier and easier every year. And I don't think it's because, you know, our brand is moving that, <laughs> that mindset on its own. I think there've been really good cross currents that we've benefited from because the timing is right. And the biggest of which is flavor profile. So dried fruit for a long time has been the domain of raisins, prunes, apricots, and increasingly mango, much of which is added sugar and sulfur dioxide as a preservative. So you went from like the cleanest ingredient deck, naturally sweet, because it's you're removing the moisture and you're concentrating the sugars, the fruit sugar, and you're adding sugar on top of that. Like, what is the thought there? It's like candy on candy. And so the pendulum for consumer flavor profile that I've been observing and is my bet, my thesis, is shifting away from super sweet to more tangy, sour, bittersweet, almost as a challenge. Like, look at the explosion of hot sauces and sriracha and ghost pepper and one chip challenge. I mean, people want a bold wake up call, if not like a nuclear explosion for their taste buds. And I didn't grow up that way a little bit, like with like warheads, if you remember that candy or like oh, yeah. my parents before that, maybe like lemon heads. I don't, you know, but by and large, it was like OJ, Sunny D, <laughs> maybe some Capri Sun. And nowadays, my kids are growing up with like better for you functional products like yours that are big, bright, flavorful, and without compromise on flavor, but getting a benefit. And they're also getting, uh, they're putting sriracha on everything. They're Mm. putting hot sauce on ice cream and on eggs. And so their taste buds are being conditioned and reprogrammed to seek out flavor. And it is not for prunes and raisins anymore. It is going to be, in my opinion, for tangy and tart fruits like citrus, not just orange either, like lemon and lime and pomelo and grapefruits chips. And it will be for iwi and persimmon and watermelon. And nobody had been innovating in that space of the dried fruit set. And so it just felt logical to take the consumer to where there's already some wind and some momentum, but it just hasn't been done in this category this way before where it will be novel to them, but it will also be familiar. So it's not such a weird thing to try a dried watermelon chip or a dried kiwi bite because they've had the fresh fruit and they like it, but they've never had it snackable the way we're trying to make it. Yeah, it's got to be pretty convenient to have, you know, like my first car out of college, like I was on this big grapefruit kick. And I remember I was, I probably shouldn't have been doing this, but I was driving and peeling a grapefruit at the same time. And I could never get the like the liquid that spilt inside of my steering wheel i was never <laughs> able to get that off and i'll never forget that car and that that stain that i put on there because it was so sticky but like having a dried grapefruit and being able to get the same benefits while i'm driving without getting my hands all messy and getting my car all sticky 
is actually pretty awesome. I love that. You know, it's like a badge of honor. You don't need like a, a car freshener. It just always smells like a citrus grove. Um, <laughs> but the cool thing is, it's a tall order to just crush an orange or a citrus fruit or a grapefruit fresh, right? It is not palatable to have a lime or anything that way beyond like a tequila shot. And so when you dehydrate it though, and you make it either thin or crispy or just the right amount of chew, you actually make it really approachable and accessible. And it can't just be the peel. It can't just be the rind because you would lose the balance of the sweetness from the flesh of the fruit where the sugars are more pronounced. But in combination, it's kind of the flavor profile I think people look for, which is just tangy enough. It's literally the definition of bitter and sweet. And the other big cross current that I think has helped make this less of a hurdle for consumers is that, you know, there's been a movement toward craft cocktails and the craft culture around whether it's craft beer increasingly made with fruit, like sours and Berliner Weisses and Hefeweizens with an orange slice. That, I don't think, was the beers that I grew up watching my, my dad and his friends drink, right? They were like, you know, Coors Light, Bud Light. And now you're getting like, a, you know, the years, like a blue moon with an orange with something. And now we made a beer with an amazing craft brewery in Brooklyn called Rise and Rind using upcycled persimmons and orange chips. And it was like the best pale ale that I'd ever had. My point is the craft cocktail movement and the alcohol movement where fruit had been a garnish of late been starting to be its own thing and elevated to like the side of your Negroni with a beautifully dried orange chip or blood orange chip on the side was the conversation piece almost more than the liquid. That was like, wow, what if I just made a snack out of all these bar, you know, garnish that I enjoy crunching on? I think that has been one of the threads we've been pulling on that has helped the consumer get over this. Oh, you can eat the rind? You're like, yeah, you have this when you go out for a, you know, happy hour. That makes me think about a, I saw a drink on Twitter. It's a craft cocktail and the founder was sending out uh, rally kits that had like a cocktail built into it it's called freshly have you heard of it i've seen something like that i'm not familiar with that one p-h-r-e-s-h-l-y and inside of it inside of this cocktail kit was a dried piece of fruit and i never thought about it till now but i feel like that's a great little conversation to have because i think a lot of your snacks would go great in his cocktail kits 100 percent. we've had some opportunities to tie in and partner with like some of the cocktail subscription boxes which are boom during covid mm-hmm. you know people invested a lot during quarantine into their home bar you weren't going out anymore and it was a bit of comfort right i mean I, i'm sure hopefully it didn't lead to too many people down a slippery slope but by and large it was a way to like stay connected as lame as they were like the virtual happy hours <laughs> with the team or whatever you'd be like, all right, I'm going to make a nice old fashioned and I'm going to add the little zhuzh to it by putting on a slice of, you know, rind orange chip on it. And that'll be a little bit of happiness during a tough time. So I definitely think there's a big idea there. We're trying to do that in a very big snackable set and not be just a niche within, say, food service or, or the bar trade, although that's an interesting business. I think 
What's exciting though is all these cross currents, whether it's charcuterie, same sort of idea, like entertaining is back. People want to host again. They want a bit of theater with their drinks and with their snacking occasions. And then just what it is doing and informing for us is that we don't want to be a better for you cranberry or raisin. And I won't name the big brands behind those. (laughs) We want to be aligned with where an entire generation of snackers are looking for and looking at for their fruit snack. And it's got to be clean as nature intended and whole. It has to be using the whole fruit and both from a flavor function and sustainability angle. And I just feel like we have a lot of those good wins at our back and we got to earn the right every day to be that brand. But that's our North Star. That's clear and concise for guardrails because that was one of my questions coming up. And clean and whole is it. I have a, a more fun of a question. Are there any fruits that you're just like, never, never, ever, is this going to be a Ryan Snack skew? So it's funny. We use pineapple. (laughs) Pineapple is pretty spiky. I wish we could use the rind of pineapples. But what we do try to retain as much as is the core, which has a ton of healthy properties and digestive enzymes. But the spikiness, it's just no one is in this looking to cut their mouth with a snack or eat glass. So I I don't think you'll see us do that. Maybe if you even shaved it down, there was a way to do it. But what I love seeing, you might appreciate this, is they're finding other uses for pineapple rind now. And Tapache, for example, uses like fermented pineapple rind. And I'm like, yes, I love it. Like all... Rising rinds lift all boats. Like, let's go. And it imparts flavor and, and probiotics. And it's just like the coolest thing to see someone harnessing a really hard, inedible part of the pineapple as a, you know, as a flavor source, as part of the fermentation. So it can be done. We might do it in a different form factor. But honestly, any fruit with a edible skin is out there for us to tinker with and work on. And frankly, the weirder, the better. I'm a firm believer in you don't build a business without building a brand first. Yeah. And you can't, the brand is the magic and gives you the license to then go out and build a business. If you're a business, but you don't have a soul, you're sort of a service, right? And you don't have stretch, you don't have pricing power, you don't have the ability to take the consumer on a journey as much. I'm not saying it can't be done, but people don't buy products, they buy stories. And what's important to us is having some SKUs that are brand building SKUs. And then to build a big business, have SKUs that are less on the tail and more under the middle of the bell curve that allow us to build the business. So Apple Chips is a good example. Like Apple Chips is proven ground. It will be a big product for us. It's launching into several key accounts and we'll be announcing some big, big wins with with Apple Chips. We think we do a much better job than some of our incumbents in that space because we use the whole fruit. We use upcycled fruit. We're one of the few dried fruit brands to be upcycled certified. And so we have our own point of difference, but it's very familiar to any family or any anyone who's had Apple Chips before. But in combination with that, we launched orange and kiwi chips. And that is something that didn't exist before on anyone's mind. And the notion of crunching your orange juice with a thin cut single ingredient orange that could live in the breakfast day part 
that's a big idea. And it's a new category. And we're going to be launching next year a line of seasoned orange chips because the flavor is so big and bold that it holds up to spice. And so when you just think about what makes a margarita so damn delicious, it's the friendship between citrus and salt. And so we're going to do that off of the orange chip platform, but we wouldn't do that off of the apple chip platform. And the orange chip is our brand builder and the apple chip is our business builder. And if we were to come out with like an apple cinnamon, whatever, I don't know that we have anything different to add there. Yes, we'd be using a better fruit or raw material that is more sustainable and whatever, but you have to show a real sense of newness and category stretch, I feel, on the brand side to burnish your brand and allow yourself to build the business. Yeah, that was just an epic thing to listen to. I loved how you talked about brand building. I think that that's a heavy focus right now. And I think that there's some brands that haven't prioritized brand building enough out there and had they all sorts of their competitors in their own respective categories wouldn't be creeping up on them so easily. Um, yeah. and I, I love that you mentioned the the season thing because this whole call, I was thinking about, and I haven't tried it yet, but like dipping one of your snacks into like Tia Lupita's little hot sauces, like that sort of thing is is huge in the Mexican culture. So I'd love to see it. Yeah, um, that I'd love, love to hear that. That's one of the other great cross currents is like, you know, I love seeing ethnic foods shining right now, you know, Szechuan chili crisps getting their due and Japanese teriyaki sauces. And, you know, there's just so many awesome, authentic heritage flavors that are inflecting into more of the mainstream hot sauces, salsa matcha, and all that cool stuff. And I think mixing and matching that with big bowls, like, I don't know that that would work if you dipped an apple chip in a picante or anything, but if you did it with an orange chip, you really do start to harmonize that citrus and salt interplay. And it's a cool thing. So I, I hope there will be a time when we're all dipping orange chips and guacamole like we do tortilla chips. And I don't think it's a bridge too far. Yeah, I've never thought of that one. But I, I think that any like a, a quick Google search or a, a walk down any street in downtown LA, you'll find a lot of um, awesome different flavors that are married together, whether it's mango or watermelon with tahini on them. It's just so many fun things to do with fruit and spice. And it's really cool that you've seen that insight with your background on market opportunity. Before we start closing out, what's one of the biggest like, oh shit, like we've got to get through this obstacle moment in Ryan's history that you're open to sharing? Boy, where to begin? Um, <laughs> I can feel that. <laughs> I can feel that in my soul. Oh my God. The biggest oh shit moment was when I flew out to meet the co-man that I had set up for our first production run and had done everything over the phone, right? I'd gotten the raw material to where it needed to be. I'd gotten the my certifications, my film, my line time. I got everything lined up and I was in town for a work event. So then I'm like, I took a day off to then drive north of the city where we were doing this production run, which was like, I think a pallet minimum was the line time I was able to negotiate. So for us, a pallet is like about 100 cases and that's 12 units per case. So 1,200 units I was making. Had no customers lined up. It was just into the abyss. And I get there and it's a thrill. I see the product being blended, being made, being heat sealed. And I hold in my hand the first 
grind commercial product that I needed to go find a customer for. And so that was the most thrilling, but the terrifying part was I was like, oh, I gotta, I gotta like get this home somehow. <laughs> and this was in Northern California, and I live in New York City. And I was like, uh, how much can I get through TSA and like not raise any alarm bells? And it was just like such a dumbass moment where I had been like, engineered everything to think of everything and then be like, oh, what do I do with the product and no customers after I've made 1,200 units of something? And so I took 200 of those units, bought a duffel bag, got through SFO with some really weird looks and had the remaining 1,000 sent to me on a less than truckload shipment cross country, which would meet me at my apartment a week and a half later. And the oh shit moment was when I got back to New York. I knew this truck was coming. I live like a lot of people do in the doorman building. I have a family here and a truckload pulls up, not a like a box truck, but like a full 52 inch trailer or whatever with all of these boxes of fruit snacks. And that was the biggest oh shit of all. And I through hooker through crook, I was able to like allow my building storage to like house it for the next month while I figured it out. But I would wake up every day thereafter and have the most powerful incentive to move these cases because (laughs) I'd either get kicked out of my building or my wife would say, that's it. You are too crazy for me. And that was the beginning, but it was absolute trial by fire. I've got something similar on my first uh, in beverage. It's always suggested to do a trial run so you can make sure that your commercialized goods are are where they should be from the bench tops. And I was at the co-manufacturer and the truck was late and we're running up against time because liquid can only sit in the vats, like the batches for so much time. And I was, it was like the downside, like the worst case scenario was the truck gets there too late and everything that was just mixed is bad and we got to do it all over again. So thankfully I invested in my weaknesses early on and still have them, but ops was on phone calls with all of these trucks, like this truck, the truck company, the actual driver, they were in Idaho when they should have been in Washington state. And we were like, dude, you've got to drop off these cans to the co-man by this time or we're done. And I was like, I flew up to go up there and meet everyone, bought everyone pizza. And at the end of the day, I was like, it's beautiful here. I'm just going to go outside to get some fresh air and you know, just enjoy it. But that was one of the ones where I was like, this is going to be an indication of how things are probably for my entire term with Perfy. And uh, it was fun. We, we got through it. I love that story. I think that's what separates like people with ideas and people that are willing to be entrepreneurs is like getting really, really messy and being okay with it and doing those little things like making allies and friends in a really authentic way out of people that you need to really help you from the very beginning, that stuff matters. And I think showing that like, look, sometimes I would just, you know, in the beginning when I didn't know the difference between like delivered pricing and FOB and whatever, and distributors were looking to onboard us. And I'd I'd be like, what do you mean when you say this acronym or that acronym? And they'd be like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, I'm starting out. Like, I'm starting out. Like, I don't know. I, I was in a different career. Like, what is going on? Like, just tell me. 
That's and like I think they kind of like appreciated that because like you got to learn it somehow, either through the experience or getting a mentor or whatever, or a mix of both. But it's going to be really, really messy, and you got to be okay with it. Now that you mentioned that, like we've got to get some heads together and put together like a legend for new founders because my head was spinning when I was like, "What the hell is an OI and an MCB and oh, like oh like God. all of these different acronyms?" It's totally different from coming from like the agency side or even on the marketing side of like a brand, like being a founder and having to know all of these acronyms is like taking, it's like learning a new language. It's insane. You're right. We could help. We could really probably put a, a serious Bible together for uh, as a growth hack, but then I feel like it wouldn't be authentic. I feel like people got to <laughs> find their own mentors, seek out the good people and figure it True. out. But yes, it would be a, there's definitely a role for community to play. I mean, look, it's one of the things I love about podcasts, like the wisdom that I gleaned from so many food podcasts and founder stories and how it does. I'm sure, you know, you feel the same, you know, having your own. It's the greatest self-help therapy of all time. Like you actually hear from others how grueling it is and what it took and how they got through it. And, you know, that to me was like, you could put a paywall behind so much of the content and podcast that's out there and it would be like a business school course that is true like nobody i listened to a b2b marketer and he says nobody goes to school for business to business marketing or something like that so he created this awesome resource i listen to a lot of podcasts too and it's the one cool thing is that every founder you know although sometimes it feels lonely we're, we're not alone in that respective way like we're all kind of going through it grinding and doing our best to make a successful business yep exactly so. well, Matt, where can everyone find you? Cool. Uh, so I still have some in my apartment building. No, I'm kidding. We've crossed a really cool milestone this year. We're at about uh, 10,000 points of distribution, which is incredibly humbling. Still feels like we're just getting started though. And But we are now national with Kroger. So if there's a Kroger banner near your listeners, they can find us there. We're in about 4,000 CVS stores in two different sets. We're in about 200 Whole Foods all along the East Coast. And we're in a lot of those cool regional accounts like a Wegmans or an HEB or Rayleigh's, Meyer, and uh, Thrive Market, Amazon, everywhere in between. So, you know, we're trying to be meet the consumer where he or she shops. And it's changing so much. I could do a whole other podcast about channel strategies, but we want to be positioned where the eyeballs are. And that's best in breed grocery, club, drug, mass. And some of these alt channels have been phenomenal as well. I wish I would have touched on channel strategy because when you mentioned CVS, I saw that on the site. That's a question I wanted to ask, but didn't write down. But uh, we'll save it for another time because I have thoughts on it. And I'm sure there's a lot of learnings for people to glean. Yeah, I would look forward to that. I would just negotiate additional cases of Dr. Perfy. Absolutely. Anytime you need to just hit me up. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Thanks, man. Well, Matt, I appreciate you for joining us. I'll link everything in the show notes. I'm just going to link to your store locator because... Um, you're in so many doors, I couldn't even take the notes of all of that. <laughs> so um, we'll just link, we'll link there and appreciate you for being on. Thank you. It's been my pleasure and I uh, look forward to watching you grow. Thanks so much. <laughs>